There are three big problems with used vehicle appraisals. One, manually sifting through comp vehicles. Two, old book values and ghost comps. Three, no recon visibility. You can solve them all with AutoVision, launching in the Reynolds & Reynolds booth at NADA. Learn more at reyrey.com slash used dash cars. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot -E com slash used dash cars. Want to dive deeper into the topics you hear about on Daily Drive? We're offering listeners a special offer, 20% off a one-year Automotive News digital subscription. That gets you access to all of our news, information, and analysis made for automotive industry leaders like you. Go to autonews.com slash daily drive promo to redeem. Welcome to Daily Drive for Tuesday, January 30th, 2024. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News in Detroit. And I'm Kellen Walker in Las Vegas. Today on the show, GM makes a big reversal on its all-EV strategy. Our forward plans include bringing our plug-in hybrid technology to select vehicles in North America. We'll also hear what Mary Barra had to say about GM's earnings in Q4. And Toyota leaps to record sales and production. Plus, we'll hear from Russell Hensley of the McKinsey Center for Future Mobility about how traditional automakers can do a better job with technology. It's not that the traditional industry is, is hobbled. I think they have some huge strengths, which is they know how to scale. It's just basically getting over the innovation hump. Let's run through all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. General Motors is making a big shift. It now plans to offer plug-in hybrid models in North America. CEO Mary Barra made the announcement during GM's fourth quarter earnings call with investors and reporters. Let me be clear, GM remains committed to eliminating tailpipe emissions from our light-duty vehicles by 2035. But in the interim, deploying plug-in technology in strategic segments will deliver some of the enviro environmental benefits of EVs as the nation continues to build its charging infrastructure. It's a major change for the automaker, which has been moving toward full battery electric models while phasing out its pioneering plug-in hybrid technology. Late last year, the rapid growth in EV demand began to slow. According to the Wall Street Journal, dealers on GM's advisory committees have been urging executives to offer hybrid models. Barra did not say which segments will receive the plug-in technology or when. On that call, Barra announced that GM's net income rose 5.2% to $2.1 billion in the fourth quarter. That means the company exceeded its full-year forecast despite the six-week UAW strike and higher spending by the automaker's cruise robo-taxi business. Executives projected that earnings would be about the same or greater in 2024. But GM's fourth-quarter adjusted pre-tax earnings and profit margin fell by more than half. Revenue declined 0.3% to about $43 billion. GM says higher vehicle pricing and an ongoing effort to reduce fixed costs by $2 billion, partly offset lower production and wider losses from crews. The automaker's North American adjusted pre-tax profit fell 45% to $2 billion, in part because of the UAW strike that lasted through much of September and October. The world's biggest automaker just got even larger thanks to a year of record results. Toyota stormed ahead to all-time highs in sales and production in 2023. That's as the Japanese auto juggernaut put the microchip shortage behind it and ramped up factories to meet booming demand in the U.S. and Europe. That demand has especially grown for electrified vehicles. 
Toyota says global sales climbed 7.2% to more than 11.2 million vehicles. The results include sales from the company's consolidated Daihatsu mini car subsidiary and its truck making affiliate, Hino Motors. And Lucid has expanded its factory in Casa Grande, Arizona, by about 3 million square feet. The expansion is part of preparations for the launch of Lucid's Gravity Crossover. The EV maker expects the Gravity to sell better than its Air sedan. The project brings the automaker's enlarged AMP1 plant to about 3.8 million square feet, more than four times its previous size. Lucid says changes to the factory will bring greater operational efficiency and cost savings. It did not say what the annual production capacity will be following the expansion. And those are today's headlines. Jamie, GM now plans to offer plug-in hybrids in North America. What does this mean for their initial EV plans? You know, there's always been this argument against hybrids that you're fundamentally paying for two powertrains, and so there's a inherent economic inefficiency there. Uh, GM really wanted to kind of skip that step. I mean, they had done hybrids and plug-in hybrids, but they really wanted to go all in on all EVs, just battery power, plug them in, charge up the batteries and go. It's been hard for them to manufacture the batteries and the vehicles. It's been hard to find enough customers willing to pay the prices that are required. So, uh, you know, hybrids and plug-in hybrids are, again, looking like a good bridge to the pure battery electric vehicle future, and uh, GM is adjusting course. Gotcha. Coming up, McKinsey's Russell Hensley shares his thoughts on the benefits and challenges of new technology for legacy automakers. That's next on Daily Drive. Daily Drive is kicking off the new year by reviving an old name in a new format. We're bringing back a weekend drive edition of Daily Drive. Jamie and I will go deeper into the biggest automotive stories of the week. Every weekend, you'll hear fresh insights, analysis, and what has me running hot, if not overheated. To think that's going to get done in a year, a little over a year, is um, foolishly optimistic. That's, that's a little dark, but let's shift to something <laughs> a little more positive. You'll also hear from our experts in the newsroom here at Automotive News about the latest industry trends and topics. EV sales are not declining. That's the narrative we're kind of seeing outside of the industry. They aren't declining, but the pace of growth definitely has slowed. Come back this weekend for our Weekend Drive edition of Daily Drive. And of course, tune in every weekday for all the news you need to know to keep up in the auto industry. Data is the backbone of your used vehicle department. You need it to find accurate comp sets and to best understand your market in order to make precise appraisal and pricing decisions. But it feels like you're always struggling to get the information you need. How much time do you spend sifting through comps because there are outliers that don't match the vehicle you're appraising? Do you frequently make manual adjustments to pricing recommendations? Reynolds' newest inventory management solution, AutoVision, can help. A.J. McGowan, president and founder of AutoVision, explains how. If you look at the way that cars are traditionally priced, you know, you can get down to specifics in terms of, you know, what zip code is it in and, you know, what options does it have on it? And, you know, some of those sorts of things. Um, but the thing that's never really taken into account um, is, you know, that dealer's, you know, specific view of the market. Our goal with AutoVision was to use, you know, technology that's available now to do real-time processing, which allows dealers to really set 
the their view of the market into AutoVision. And then we use our tools to analyze the data that's there and show them this is what this vehicle is worth to you. AutoVision can help you run your used vehicle department with precise comp sets, real-time inventory data, and reconditioning insights. Visit reyrey.com slash used dash cars to find out more. That's R-E-Y, R-E-Y dot com slash used dash cars. Welcome back to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Kellen Walker. How long have we been talking about digital disruption in the automotive industry? It's an ongoing phenomenon that offers both challenges and opportunities for suppliers, manufacturers, and retailers. For legacy automakers who see possible economic benefits of new tech, it's a race against new players who have had a tech-first approach from the jump. Russell Hensley co-leads McKinsey's Center for Future Mobility. He advises automakers on navigating software, autonomy, and electrification transitions. Hensley spoke with Automotive News tech and innovation team leader Pete Bigelow on Shift, a podcast about mobility. Here's a piece of their conversation. We see automakers implementing electric. We see them implementing automated vehicle technology. It may not be fully automated, but you know, advanced driver assist systems. So does a major advantage then sit with the traditional automakers in this larger mobility space, or, or are they too facing you know, a state of uncertainty or a state of flux? I think it's, uh, I think it's, it's challenges on both sides. I think, you know, if you look at the traditional industry and uh, the adoption of, of, of some of these technologies that are in the, I would say, relative infancy, you know, maybe electrics are a little bit more mature than the uh, autonomy and some of the self-driving tech, uh, because it's, it's, it's an incredibly hard problem to solve. Um, but they, they can be challenged by innovation. They can be challenged by that risk uh, taking. Um, it's not necessarily been the, the card that they've played. Uh, you know, the, the industry is uh, very, very invested in brands uh, that are incredibly uh, in, expensive to, to build over decades and decades. And therefore, they don't want to put them at risk. Where, you know, the other side of the coin, if you look at the, the, the startups and some of the innovators who are, um, you know, more likely to, uh, to, to be risk takers, uh, but they they are challenged with uh, you know going from a, uh, a a great idea a great innovation and actually scaling that to you know the size of uh, of the volumes that we like to see in order to uh, again to to make the profits that uh, that you need. So I think you know it's not that the um, the traditional industry is 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 hobbled. I think they have some huge strengths, which is they know how to scale. It's just basically getting over the innovation hump. And I think, again, if you look at the startups, it's it's more of a challenge of knowing how to scale and build things in the tens, hundreds of thousands, as opposed to, uh, you know, the thousands. I think there was a McKinsey statistic from a while back that that 93% of the investment that's going into the auto industry is coming from outside the traditional automakers. That's That's kind of harrowing to think about. And what does that mean for for the way that traditional OEMs can evolve, can can develop new businesses that kind of propel them into the future. Yeah, I think I think it's a, it's it's a good start. I think that you know it looks at uh, external investments, and you know you've got uh, these you know large global players on on the tech side of things that have got uh, you know really deep pockets and and valuations that. Uh, that help them make uh, make investments and big bets. 
And, uh, you know, I think if you take a little bit of a step back, Pete, that's, you know, one of maybe four or five uh, aspects or attributes that you would think about when you think about transformation and the transformation that we're going through. So for sure, investment, which historically has been led by incumbents, you know, in the form of R&D and the, the, the three and a half to five percent of revenue that gets invested every year, um, is increasingly led by newcomers. And, you know, to your point, since 2010, I think we've seen 850 billion plus being invested. And and, and those transactions, uh, 90 plus percent, 93 percent, as you said, is non-automotive players or non-traditional players. So means a whole bunch of newcomers, some new competition. The second thing is um, if you uh, if you look at geoeconomics, uh, as we call it these days, you know, we've been used to, I think, over this last era of, of 20, 25 years moving towards global trade where, um, you know, you've, you've got to kind of get your head around. Is that going to continue or are we going to move to more of a, a decoupled uh, model as, as world order, you know, begins to begins to shift? And we see these, these tectonic shifts. The third piece is technology. And, you know, historically, last 120, 30 years, internal combustion has dominated with a few different fuels, but that's clearly going through an energy transition and moving towards electrics. Um, you know, EV sales, as we've spoken about before, you know, you will see uh, adoption, but it will be in a, in a kind of an S-curve S mode like any other innovation. And we're in the, 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 the early stages of that. The fourth piece of it is the customer. You know, the customer, um, uh, certainly for automotive, has been very hardware focused uh, historically. Uh, if you if you look uh, over the history of the vehicle and that that software differentiation is something that's increasingly uh, uh, prevalent within the vehicles. And one of the things at CES that you saw um, loud and clear was the software defined vehicle. You know, we've got I don't know what it is, two to three times as much software in a vehicle um, relative to only kind of eight to 10 years ago. And then the last piece of it, you know, is the industry and this transformation of the industry. We've gone from these these. Um, truly established supply chains and a tier structure uh, to something that's quite different. Uh, you know, it's it's a relatively new ecosystem of players where you've got, you know, something like a third of the the, the value of the uh, of the vehicle or the cost of the vehicle is going to be driven by the, the battery cell and the battery pack and, and what you do with that. So, again, that brings on a whole new cadre of players. So net net, not just the investment, it's the it's the economics, the technology, the customer and the industry dynamics that's that's proving um, a uh, let me say a, 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 an incredibly um, uncertain but opportunity uh, rich environment for, for the next 15 to 20 years. Russell, is this unprecedented uh, that that any company has to try and handle all these things at, at one time? Or is this, uh, or is there historical, um, you know, is there a historical vantage point on on where you see these eras that are, you know, very disruptive overall? Yeah, I think uh, it's it's a great question, Pete. And um, you know, you'd you'd like to think, uh, you know, hey, geez, nobody's ever dealt with this before, lived through these kind of uh, challenges. But actually, this, you know, the the the, the side of of some of the the, the talks that we've had is based around this perma crisis and you know if we look back in history um there's there's basically three major times when we've had uh, such uncertainty and they what they tend to what they tend to occur right at the at the beginning of a new era a new era being you know the the, the kind of 20 to 30 years where you have somewhat 
of a stable environment or a, at least a consistent environment. So if you take 44 to 46, we had, you know, the foundation of the of the World Bank. We had currencies that were pegged on the U.S. dollar. Um, the atomic age began. It was the end of World War II. You had the rebuilding of Europe. You had the Marshall Plan. That was 44 to 46. And that was followed by what we call the post-war boom, where you had these, you know, uh, upper two two and a half to three percent growth rates for that kind of 20 to 30 years. That was then ended where, where we had the 71 to 73, where we had, um, you know, Japan surpassed the German GDP, uh, which was was shocking at the time. Um, I know because I was alive. Uh, Pete. Uh, you had the oil crisis, you had Vietnam withdrawal, you had inflationary recession and you had, you know, the, 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 say chaos for a few years there, oil crisis uh, to, 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 to be one of them followed by what we called an era of contention. And again, that uh, that 20 to 30 years, relatively low growth rates. It wasn't the two and a half to three percent. It was more like the one to one and a half. Very different growth rates. Then 89 to 92, the Berlin Wall came down. We had the Gulf War. The World Wide Web was was uh, was invented or birthed. Um, you know, we had the Maastricht Treaty. You had this integration of, uh, of what was called the USSR. You know, so so the Beatles song uh, no longer was as important as it was. But um, you had that, uh, you know, followed by what we call the era of markets. And we had this globalization thing uh, that, that happened until, you know, we, we, we had this thing called COVID, you know, in 2020. So so this this start of, of uncertainty and probably the end of an era and the beginning of a new era started with COVID. Then we had Russia invaded Ukraine. Then we had the chip crisis. Then we had inflation. Then we had changing role of China, a labor crisis that uh, just happened in the last quarter, believe it or not, Middle East conflict. And then we've got this thing called AI, you know, an AI singularity. I mean, which so, you know, to a point we have these these periods of um, what feels like chaos when you're living and managing and leading through them to, to any executive um, that is is in essence, it's the start of a new era. The question then becomes, Pete. What defines that new era? You know, and this, the, the, literally there are there are four or five things that define the new era. And this is where we encourage, you know, executive teams that are clients to actually think through uh, in terms of world order. You know, are we going to have the decoupled world? Is it going to be global? What's going to happen in terms of tech? You know, acceleration, we talked about the software defined vehicle. What does that mean for me? Demographics, we've got fewer workers, far fewer workers as the, you know, the boomers retire. And the echo boomers begin to retire. So the workforce isn't going to be as abundant as it has been. Then your fourth one is, is, is energy. And this energy transition to electrics, it's not going away. You know, what, what's, it going to, what's it going to do over the next uh, 10 to 20 years? And then finally, capital. As we said, you know, capital isn't uh, as, uh, as cheap as it has been historically. And, uh, and what's going to happen with, with capital over the next 10 to 20 years? So those five things, if you have a perspective on those five things, then you've probably got a reasonable idea although there is enough uncertainty around today, of, of what the next era may hold for us. Russell Hensley co-leads McKinsey's Center for Future Mobility. He spoke with our own Pete Bigelow on Shift, a podcast about mobility. You can hear the full conversation on Shift wherever you get your podcasts. That's Daily Drive for today. I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Kellen Walker. Thanks to Automotive News coordinating producer Jake Neer, as well as our own Lindsey Van Hulley, Hans Grimel, and Lawrence Iliff for their reporting for today's podcast. You can get the latest news on earnings, powertrain technology, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com. 
Come back tomorrow for my conversation with independent dealer Amanda Gordon about the state of the used car market. Where I was about 20% cash purchases, now I'm seeing closer to 50% cash purchases. And that's the people who are saying, I'm not paying these crazy interest rates. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode.